What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam. I hope everyone out there is doing well. I want to welcome you to episode 44 of the Hashishin, presented by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Adam of Hashberry Extracts, based in San Francisco, California. He tells us a bit about his beginnings with cannabis in New York and at what point his interest shifted specifically towards growing to make hash. We talk about his recent pheno hunt, his preference for hash, and much more. So definitely stay tuned for it. A huge shout out to the people who allow us to continue bringing you episodes, the people who make up our community on Patreon. Because of those people's contributions, I have the ability to spend the majority of my time planning, crafting, and bringing you these conversations, which we hope you keep finding value in. If you would ever like to support the podcast, you can visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn through our instagram bio at the hashish in or our website the hashish in.com a big shout out to our awesome sponsors another big reason that we're able to keep bringing you the podcast especially our main sponsor rosin evolution who again you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on instagram at rosinevolution 100 if you wash hash or you press rosin and you value peace of mind, then trust Rosin Evolution's gear, like many of the top hash makers in the nation, for their durable, reliable, and quality products. Their wash bags are the best deal in hash. Their quality control is unmatched. Their customer service is the best in the business. So if you need anything to wash or press rosin, you know where to go, rosinevolution.com and use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, all together to save 5% off your entire purchase and to help support the podcast. Again, THI710 all together saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to Rocky Mountain Seed Bank, who you can visit at rockymountainhigh719.org, where you can find a great selection of seeds from a trusted source. Rocky only carries the gear he grows himself from some of the most reputable breeders out. He's always making cool additions like Turp Fountain Genetics and adding classics like the Swamp Boy Seeds. For those of you that don't have the time or resources to hunt your own keepers, Rocky has started offering cuts of some of his most prized genetics, allowing you to immediately add killer genetics into your garden. And of course, if you're looking to hunt for the fire, he has a ton of great seeds geared towards hash, including a big selection from Harry Palms, aka Bloom Seed Co., who just dropped some new gear at RockyMountainHigh719.org. So visit them for all your genetic needs. Rocky continues to hook us up with a 25% discount for all Hashishin listeners by using our savings code, the letters THI at checkout. That's a quarter off the price of your entire order on both seeds and cuts by using our savings code, the letters THI at RockyMountainHigh719.org. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. What's up, Adam? I appreciate you taking the time to talk for a second time. Hey, what's up, Shragam? I appreciate you having me. I'm super excited. Yeah, likewise, man. Like I've been telling you since we've been talking, I've been a fan of yours. Uh, I think I was picking up some of your work around 2016, if I'm not incorrect. And funny enough, when we talked last time, you remembered me from the Emerald Cup, and I obviously remembered you 
uh, and then we also figured out that we went to that second Frenchie cannoli class in San Francisco, although I never really knew you back then or anything. It's pretty funny how kind of life turns out and here we are again. I know, full circle. So before we started this conversation, you just told me that it's nice to getting back to doing what you like to do or love to do. Can you tell us about your current situation in regards to cultivating and cash making? Yeah, uh, like I was telling you, I'm just at this point able to do everything myself. Like I was saying, it makes me happy. It's just what I wanted to be doing. Just having a small personal setup going where I'm growing everything and loving soil, washing it myself, popping seeds, and just really growing what I want to grow finally. It's allowed me to make quality that I'm going for. Yeah, because in part it was a response to me saying that I was going through your feed and some of the latest hash you had posted just looked amazing. And you were saying that in part it's because you are able to do everything yourself, including the cultivation and the processing. What do you feel like that adds to your process? Although possibly limiting in the sense of being able to do more work. What it adds is just being able to be in control in every aspect of the production, you know, from, from the seed being sprouted to the hash being jarred up and stored and handled everything about it. Just really focusing on quality the whole way through. You mentioned having the ability to pop seeds and being excited about that. What are some of the genetics that you're currently working through? Uh, currently, I just ran a Z1000 and a Pro Loco, which I've been really excited about, particularly the Skittles and Papaya. I really enjoyed both of those cultivars a lot. And I was kind of thinking that they would be incredible together and somewhat of a goal of mine to find something that had both you know, the best of both worlds of those kind of varieties. So if I'm not mistaken, the Z1000 is from CSI Humboldt and the Puro Loco is from Archive? Correct. So what was the conclusion once you grew them out? Was it the combination that you thought it would be? The Puro Loco that I kept from the initial seed rounds really surprised me. It was kind of something that I don't think I could have expected, but came out better than I imagined, I would say, from the initial smoke. But it, it was very Skittles-esque with a distinct tropical flavor, a tropical flavor mixed in there. that's just incredible. And then I think it's got something from the Moonbow as well. It's kind of like a, a potpourri, like very floral rose-like kind of aftertaste towards the end it's just really complex and incredible i have one that's really skittles dominant uh i haven't smoked it yet but unfortunately i'm not sure if i'm gonna still have that clone it might not have made it and by that you mean what the cuts just weren't rooting on that one they were taking really long and I did try to re-veg one of the plants and it doesn't look like it's, it's going to take. So it might not be around next time. 
is that a process that is typically difficult or was that you feel almost like a genetic trait of that particular Z1000? It, I think it has a lot to do with this strain because it really doesn't want to root, but also it's just something that happens. And so that one was the one that you were targeting more to look for the Skittles type terps and the Puro Loco was more the papaya based terps or were you also looking for those Skittle terps in that as well? Yeah, I was looking for both in the Puro Loco, but then after growing it, I really was kind of just surprised to discover it was extremely moonboat dominant. There wasn't much of the papaya coming through. So part of me feels like I did find a little bit of a special one because it's got very heavy Skittles moonbow kind of profile with a noticeable tropical kind of twist from the papaya. And you were mentioning last time that these particular washes are a combination of multiple of these phenos. How many phenos are you including in those? There was six phenos in, in the last one I was telling you about, three of each strain, and that was the uh, champagne mango and the Pro loco. This next wash will only have two. Those two are ones that you've kept from the six? Yeah, one that was kept from the six, and then also another one that I've, I've had for a minute. Okay, cool. And you were actually telling me that you feel like you were kind of a little late on the papaya train or the papaya terps, but you really like them. Yeah, yeah. I, it was kind of popular by the time I had initially tried it. I think maybe around 2017, 2018. And when I first tried the hash, I was really blown away by it. And then the more I was exposed to it, the more and more I liked it. I just felt like it was special right away. Yeah, I was telling you last time that I was chatting with uh, Sam of Dab Logic, and he mentioned to me that papaya typically has uh, terpene. I forget which one it is, but it's usually pretty rare and that it has it in pretty like decent amounts for uh, like a particular variety. So I think that, you know, that's one of those strains that like you can almost tell if there's papaya in it or possibly a papaya cross or something along those lines. So it's interesting that just possibly one main terp could be that distinguishable, if you want to call it that. Yeah, definitely. It's very interesting. They're not all equally potent as far as their flavors and aromas. So a very small amount of one could be a lot more influential than a much larger amount of another terpene, for example. Same with cannabinoids, really. So, for example, when you are looking through these selections, let's say out of these Puro Loco Finos, how are you choosing which ones to keep? Really looking at, looking at the big picture in all ways. My main goal is hash. So at this point, if something was good enough that really impressed me enough, I, I would keep it for flower, but it's not necessarily my main goal. I'm looking for the best hash plants I can find. Ironically enough, though, one of those phenos, I think you told me you weren't going to keep because it had maybe like a slow veg and wasn't growing so big, but you actually tried some of that flower. Or once you tried that, you decided that it was worth keeping. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first one to make me write, holy shit, in the tasting notes. <laughs> and uh, I decided to cut as many clones of that one as I could and, and run it again. So tell us a little bit more about it, because if I remember correctly, I think you just said 
it didn't have like a great position. It was kind of sandwiched in. What has been the change as you've kept it, given it more space and kind of worked it a little differently? Yeah, that's actually a really cool thing to see because when it was going with the other plants, they just overgrew it. It didn't even get any light. It didn't make it up to the canopy. And it just had this one wispy cola that didn't look too impressive. Like I said, I kind of wrote it off until I actually tried it and was blown away. But it was really cool to see the difference when she's given more space and more attention. And she really shined and impressed me a lot more. Because I was going into it, not really sure what to expect, hoping it would be good, but knowing it could go either way, knowing it's probably going to taste great regardless. Yeah, I was really impressed to see the colas kind of stack and, and look nice and get some nice buds on there, considering what she looked like when she didn't have that much light. Do you still intend to wash this or is this something you're keeping for flower? Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to wash it. When determining which ones you want to keep for hash, do you go more off like a feel, for example, of the physical qualities of the resin by touching, by looking, or is it more based on like empirical data of like a wash, for example? Both, I would say, like determining if it's going to be worth washing it in the first place. I would be looking at the resin, feeling the resin examining the plant jar test can come in handy too but you know after being washed if i decide it's it seems like it's worth washing obviously the way that wash goes will determine if i feel like it's worth washing again now like i mentioned at the beginning uh, i've been a fan of your work for a while now so you know based on our last conversation you've been making hash for a while let's say and you joked around about the relative meaning of back in the day in our last conversation, which you know now can mean three or four or five years. It seems like uh, a lot has happened since then. But what I'm getting at is you were talking about percentages right now. Has that shifted for you? Did you used to, for example, uh, maybe expect less out of material than you do now, if that's a fair question? I'd say yes and no. I mean, back then it was much different. It was like we, I would wash whatever I could get my hands on. It wasn't really a determining factor. It's like, oh, will this yield or not? It was more of a learning experience, really finding out what washes and what didn't. And it wasn't really widespread knowledge whatsoever at that point, like what would yield or even the fact that some things might yield better than others. Like not a lot of people had really caught on to that as much. And currently, going back to the idea of having a small setup, but being able to do it exactly how you like, what kind of percentages, or do you have a cutoff percentage, for example, for a strain that you really like, but if it doesn't yield X amount, it has to go, especially with the lack of room, let's say? That's a good question. Um... I don't, I don't have a cutoff, like nothing set in stone, at least at this point. If it was under like three, it would probably have to be really amazing to make me feel like it was worth it. Yeah, because it would just be crazy to go through so much work for such a small amount in return. Yeah, I think that's 
pretty fair. I'm always just curious to see kind of what people's cutoff point is, you know, in comparison to the yield and the trade-off of either the terps or whatever it is about that particular plant that they may really enjoy. Yeah, there's also a factor of how much does the plant yield in addition to, you know, what it's going to yield percentage-wise off the, the weight of the flower. But also it's like basically coming down to how much hash are you going to get from this much space of growing it kind of makes the most sense. Right. So you're saying in a way that the biomass or the actual size of the plant is going to affect also how those percentages play out in the wash. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Like potentially you could have a plant that yields a little bit less percentage wise than another one, but that plant that yields a little bit less actually produces more flower that might have better surface area. So you end up yielding more per light or per space that you have in your garden over something that actually has a higher percentage of yield. So you mentioned the living soil earlier. Is that a style that you've been using for a while? For like the last four or five years, I would say. I'm going to say, yeah, before that, I was, I was growing in soil, but with like organic nutrients, feeding organic nutrients. So it was just the next step in quality, I felt like. So you mentioned earlier always being in pursuit of quality. Was the switch to living soil specifically for that? Definitely. Yeah. To me, I see it as the ultimate as far as quality in the way that you could grow cannabis indoors. And I'm always curious to hear how people define living soil or at least like their base principles of what they feel needs to be going on for it to be considered living soil. Basically, just trying to replicate what's going on out there in the ground in nature having as many of the constituents as possible where you have fungi bacteria all sorts of microbes protozoa insects that all make up this living soil food web that um yeah it's basically mimicking what's already existent in nature so in comparison to growing soil with organic inputs what do you feel outside of mimicking nature that living soil brings to the plants? Have you seen a change in the resin in these last four years, let's say? I definitely think the resin is getting better. I think that's, it's definitely a factor. One of the best things I think about it is just the fact that I think when it's done right and you have plants in healthy soil, healthy living soil, they basically have everything that they want or need available to them and working with all the life in the soil, with all the microbes, they're able to really more selectively get and eat what they want at any given time versus being in an inner medium where they're just sitting there waiting for the nutrients to come in and they're taking what they're getting when they're giving it. It's more of like a living buffet for the plant. Since you are growing inside, are you using cover crop and any kind of material to supplement the living soil in that sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm always cover cropping, mulching everything that's not used so it's getting broken down and becoming the soil. 
and I do amend from time to time. I've been using a craft blend from Build a Soil a lot. I'm a big fan of a lot of their stuff. I'll add microbes as well. Use coconut water, aloe juice. Now you've mentioned to me that your cultivation has been a little up and down in the last few years in the sense of like sometimes you haven't had the opportunity to cultivate. How do you keep that soil alive during that time? Or was that not necessarily like a concern for you? Um, Well, for the last few years, I've been able to keep it alive pretty well. It was mostly before that, before I started growing in living soil, that there were some gaps in between where I wasn't growing for periods of time. But I've also had a period of time where the soil's kind of gone dormant and um, can revive it. I'm curious how. The biggest thing is is rehydrating it and then re-amending it. But yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. You know, I've been learning as much as I can, particularly the last few years about soil, about living soil. And I was kind of under the impression at first, it's like if it completely dries out, then it's probably all dead, all gone. Like you have to start from scratch, but it's a little bit of a learning experience, kind of realizing that it's not necessarily how it works. A lot of stuff just kind of goes dormant in the soil and kind of protects itself from what I know with kind of like a, almost like a waxy coating, which, which like helps preserve it. And then that's why the soil actually becomes hydrophobic, which is the most difficult part of rehydrating it. It can take a lot of work rehydrating a soil that's gone completely dry. But yeah, that's actually from what I've learned why the soil will go hydrophobic because a lot of these living things in the soil have actually gone dormant and kind of created a shell around themselves to protect themselves and repels the water. That's super interesting and also pretty neat that you can, in essence, kind of kickstart it back into being a, a more living <laughs> soil, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I made the mistake of amending it and then realizing that it probably didn't need to be and kind of had to let it chill for a bit because a lot of the stuff in there was composting and kind of raising the temperature a little too much to put plants in there for a bit. One of the things I read on one of your posts is that you use all the material that you don't wash or use. That all goes back into the soil. Is that part of your system? Yeah, just basically taking the resin off the plant and mulching everything else, recycling it back into the soil. So let's talk about resin. Hmm. It brings a smile to your face just (laughs) talking about it and me too. And, you know, last time that we spoke, uh, I brought up what seems kind of like what things always come to with people that are making high-grade hash that I ask is, you know, do you have a preference for hash? And you answered that then, but I'll let you answer it now. Like a preference for hash over over other things? I mean, I don't want to make it the hash versus rosin thing, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, hash is my favorite. It really is. I think it's the ultimate. I definitely prefer it over everything else. Still think it's just incredible 
that it even exists that we're able to get these trichome heads together and isolated and collected into this beautiful thing that we call hash. When it comes down to it, I think it's the most beautiful example of like the most beautiful manifestation of the love between cannabis and humans is hash. What do you feel is in part what makes you feel so connected to it? Oh man, it's a good question. I mean, it goes way back, but there's definitely a point where I had a realization with the plants. Like when I've been growing, I've always really enjoyed spending time with the plants, looking at them, observing them. One time, probably around 2006, 2007, I was just looking at my plants and just looking at them and thinking about all the crazy extent, the crazy lengths I had gone to to hide them there in my house. Everything I had been risking, all the extreme measures like living in secrecy, and I was kind of just thinking about how crazy it was. And I kind of ended up looking at it from their perspective. And I had this realization that they were having me grow them as much as I was deciding to grow them. The whole time up to that, like I thought, you know, I was making this decision. I was in control and I was choosing to grow these plants. And then just thinking about all everything I was doing, it's like, I don't know, it all kind of just all hit me at once. Like from their point of view, they were having me grow them just as much as I was deciding to grow them. And they're kind of, they're alive, you know, like every living thing wants to reproduce. It's just like natural. And they're so different from animals. They're so different from us in so many ways, but largely in the sense that they can't move. They're stuck where they are. So in order to reproduce and like spread themselves around the world, they have to be much more clever than we do. They have to convince somebody like you and I to want to bring them with us. And the job they did of doing that is kind of mind-blowing and incredible. If you think about it, that you've got all these people all around the world, literally risking their lives and risking their freedoms to keep these plants protected, to create more of them, to spread them, to share them. You know, it's just pretty incredible. Yeah, when you look at it that way, it definitely is super incredible. And I think I watched something some years ago where it was, you know, something along the lines of like the intelligence of plants and a plant like cannabis that, you know, went from being a wild plant to now being what it is, you know. And it, it's pretty amazing how humans have been in this is almost like the carriers yeah a hundred percent i'm continually fascinated by this incredible symbiotic relationship between humans and cannabis plants and the depth of it is just really incredible something i also think about is just the fact that magnificent flower would exist without human interference but hash would not hash is something that's only created with this collaboration between cannabis and humans really out of love out of humans really loving this plant and figuring out how to first off that the resin is really where it's at and then on top of that how to isolate it and extract it and collect it 
yeah, it's really an incredible thing. That's why I think it's just, it's the best of both worlds where it's something that came out of this relationship between the humans and the plants. So I haven't asked someone this in a long time, dude, but if you had to define what hashish is to you, what is it? To me, it's the trichome gland heads collected, isolated. If we had to make a distinguishment between hashish and hash, is there one? Uh, I don't think it's really officially standardized yet, if you will. But as far as I've always known and I've always thought of it, like hashish is more traditional pressed type of resin where you know in more modern times people aren't pressing it the same for obvious reasons but really i think it's just comes down to two different words for the same thing but the point you bring up about the human interaction is interesting because it's definitely been something that i've thought about where hash is this intersection between humans in cannabis like you said the flowers would grow but the hash has to be made to some degree yeah definitely well cool man i think this is a good opportunity for a first smoke break you down i'm down cool i want to take a moment to thank every person that makes up our community on patreon for allowing us to produce episode 44 with Adam of Hashberry Extracts and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Okta Creations in Colorado, Fuel by Full Melt, Ganja Flip, Garland in DC, Jonah in Illinois, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, David of Rosin Evolution, Melt Walkie Jeff, The Real Cannabis Chris, Depeche 44 in Connecticut, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, Mids Adjacent in Arizona, Jungly Grows, The Chile Relleno Burrito, Nick the Intern, Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino, Macro Melts in SoCal, and the homie Big C. I thank each and every one of you. Now back to the episode. You've been in San Francisco for a while now, but you're originally from New York. So tell us a little bit about your time kind of growing up and what got you into weed in the first place. Oh man, funny actually. I first when I first smoked weed, I probably smoked it about four or five times with my friends. We had no idea what we were doing. We were smoking some dirt, and first time we like rolled it up in loose leaf paper. Tried smoking it. We tried making a little bong with a big pen and a Gatorade bottle. Did not know what we were doing. What's really hilarious is I think like the first few times, like I really thought I was high. I must have got like a placebo effect for sure because we were all acting goofy just like we thought okay this is it this is weed right like we we're laughing and then probably like the fifth or sixth time i actually smoked it was one of the first times i was smoking by myself and i just again i made a, a plastic i made a bong out of like alien like one of those yard things of beer where they you know, it's like a little plastic alien and I had a corn cob pipe that I stuck in there for a down stem. And uh, I smoked all, all we had back then was like Mexican brickweed swag. And I smoked some of that and I was tripping out. I remember calling my friend and telling her like, 
I think I got some stuff that's laced. Like my mouth is really dry. I feel so high. And like, she was like, no, no, that's just, that's weed. You're high. <laughs> so it was crazy. It was like, okay, so this, this is weed. So after the initial like actual experience, were you more into it? Very much so. I was fascinated and intrigued. And I definitely enjoyed it a lot, but it wasn't until later in life that it got more serious, if you will. You mentioned to me last time that you feel like cannabis can be considered almost like a mild psychedelic. At what point did you start noticing that? I mean, from that initial time, without a doubt, I just... (laughs) Back then, I had no idea what psychedelic was or what it meant. So I was experiencing it without really knowing it. But that's one of the things about it. It's like, yeah, I, I said mildly psychedelic, but depending on the situation, depending on your tolerance, uh, it can be more than mildly psychedelic. Do you feel like hash can be more so psychedelic than smoking the flower or the buds? <laughs> yeah. It's just stronger. It's more concentrated. So, yeah. This is maybe kind of a weird thing to bring up, but since you're talking about things that like affect whether something can be perceived as psychedelic or not, do you feel like setting plays a large role? A hundred percent. Just like any psychedelic, it's a huge factor. Set and setting, meaning the person what what they have going on inside them, their experience in life, what they've been through, their perspectives, and then also the setting, the environment, the people they're around as well. So from the brickweed, what was your kind of next step? Were you guys able to get what would people would call maybe drill back there or something of the sort? <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that because the first time I smoked dro was uh with my friend kevin and he was like i think we were like it was after school and he was like hey man i got some dro and i was like oh shit dro so i thought i was trying a new drug like i had no idea what it was but i was down you know so we ended up smoking and talking about it and that's when he was telling me you know this i think 13 year old perspective on what dro actually was hydroponically grown cannabis and you mentioned to me something that seems to kind of come up a lot now about some of the varieties that you ended up smoking while you were still out there and that they were very sativa-esque. I know that's kind of maybe not the best term anymore to describe, but it is interesting that being in New York, it is a pretty like fast pace of life and that that's almost like a fitting type of profile for the people in the city and obviously that's a really big generality yeah yeah but it makes a lot of sense if you know in new york and you've been to new york and you know hayes and sour diesel and and those sort of things it's like it makes a lot of sense you get up in the morning make a cup of coffee roll up your haze (laughs) you said a little earlier this is before things got serious in regards to cannabis, when did it get serious? Uh, I think it really started to get more serious when uh, I moved out to California. 
when I was 18. Like literally the day after I turned 18, first moved out to California and then started growing out there. And then really just having that first realization with that first plant that I grew and seeing just the resin all over it, just having never seen anything like that. It was, it was such a big realization for me that like just this plant is incredible and beautiful and amazing if, if just given a proper environment, you know, and all the herb that I had been seeing up until that point kind of, it made me realize that it had not been grown well, to say the least, and it had been handled poorly, beat up, abused, and just, yeah, it was a big realization for me. And after that, I kind of never looked back. Kind of ironically enough, if I remember correctly, that plant that you grew that you're talking about, how beautiful it was, came from another type of brickweed. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess I forgot to mention that. That's what made it so obvious to me. I guess I didn't really know even what the bud naturally, you know, in its, in its natural state even looked like at that point, because a lot of the stuff I had seen was not even close. Like I had, you know, grown up smoking brickweed basically. But yeah, that plant actually came from a seed, fully seeded weed, some, some brickweed, some swag some stress that we got from South Central LA and seeing this plant come out of it that smelled like lemon and was just beautiful and covered in resin, you know, it was a big surprise. Was the primary motivation of you moving to California based on being able to grow cannabis or be around it more? Yeah, cannabis was definitely the primary motivating factor. I didn't necessarily plan to grow it. I didn't know I was going to grow it, but really just the, the quality and the access that I became aware of was a big factor. And at that point, since things were a lot riskier, let's say, how were you educating yourself outside of just doing it? Outside of my experience with it, the biggest thing that I was introduced to out in California was Overgrow, the online growing forums, just an absolute treasure trove of information and really the first place where I found an incredible community of people that love and cherish this plant and were, you know, pioneering the, the work that was being done with it. Overgrow was amazing. And we spent me and my roommate at the time, we spent countless hours reading on it, learning about genetics, growing a lot of different things about the plant. Their strain database was amazing. It's a great place to start learning about genetics. And really, that's where I was first introduced to bubble hash or the idea of bubble hash as well. Seeing Bubble Man's posts on there and other people's posts on there about bubble hash. And we started reading about it and knew that we had to try it. Yeah, and I asked you why last time, and we basically kind of came to the conclusion that it's like because you were always looking for the best weed, and you just figured if you condensed the best weed, that would be even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundred percent. the The pictures were mind blowing, but also the descriptions that we were reading, where these people that clearly knew their shit, they knew what they were talking about, were saying that this is undeniably the best, highest quality most potent cannabis product that 
you can possibly attain. That was all I needed to hear. You brought up a good point, though, in that back then, it was basically only a cultivator or a grower who had bubble mesh. It wasn't like a thing for the market, really, necessarily. Yeah, that's really true. And that's why it was so hard to obtain for a while. That's why it was a few years from that point until I actually ended up smoking it. And the first time I was able to try it was when I made it myself from, you know, my own homegrown material. When you were doing that, was that off, for example, trim and other type of possible waste material or was it for off buds like it's commonplace now? That was from trim uh, back at that time. That's what hash was, at least in America. Domestically, it was a product that was made from waste. Nobody ever would wash buds back then. It was completely unheard of. Funny enough, I was actually trimming it wet and freezing the trim fresh just to make the bubble hash because I had read from Bubble Man that the fresh frozen was actually better for hash. So I was intentionally doing that in order to make the highest quality bubble hash possible. Not really aware at the time of how that negatively impacts the flower when it's drying that way, but that's what I was doing. So run that by us one more time. What were you doing with the flower itself? Freezing it and then drying? No, the flower I was drying to smoke, but instead of chopping the plant and then just putting it on the drying rack, drying it as is, I was taking off the trim, essentially trimming it while it's still fresh, while it's still wet, and then saving that fresh, wet trim and freezing that to make bubble hash out of that, and then proceeding to dry the branches with the flowers on them to be smoked as normal. Commonly known as wet trimming, but a lot of people look down on it because it, the, the way that the bud dries is, is not ideal. It's much, much better to have the leaf and the plant intact. And then when the flower dries, it can dry more slowly and evenly. I totally get that. So basically, instead of having the trim surround the buds and kind of curl up like you see around them and, and maybe protect them from drying out too fast. You had used that trim to make bubble hash so the plants were kind of a little more exposed when drying. Right. And what was your experience from washing that early material? It was a lot different than now, but I loved it. It's what put me on to hash in the first place. A lot of very low yields, a lot of really dark, really wet hash that was never full melt but a lot of times was was very very melty you know but not like full melt like we know it today the one thing that's really besides obviously using higher quality material but the one thing that's really changed the game so much is proper separation and drying techniques because back then it was like medieval times in comparison to what we're doing now you know taking a knife and and chopping the wet hash up and trying to air dry it at room temperature on a piece of cardboard. That's what we were doing. Yeah, and funny enough, we talked about this last time, saying that 
part of the things I remember about your hash, even though it's been some years now, is that it always had this very particular look. It looked like sparkly dust. So it would look like super fine and it had this kind of glitter to it. And I always thought it was cool. And it's also kind of cool to think back that when air dry was more prominent, there were more like kind of looks that people had. So it's, yeah. I remember that you had a look, but what I'm getting at is you said that part of the look was because you were drying it so well, let's say, because you took such pride in drying it. So how did it go from putting it on cardboard and chopping it up with a knife to making it look that way in, let's say, 16 or 17? The biggest thing was the introduction of the microplane. When I had found Matt Rise's thread on Bolt It Up, where he shared that tech with the world, that was huge. That was really a game changer and really just opened up the whole world of hash because, you know, so many people use that tech and then learn things here and there and just people sharing what they've learned with each other, you know, within the hash community, like it's really developed into what we're looking at now. But being able to realize that the necessity of working in the cold, as well as being able to break up the hash so finely with the microplane to expose all that surface area and really dry it properly. It just took everything to the next level. So what really, I guess, pushed me in the direction of focusing on drying properly and making sure it was dry was having a lot of experiences with hash that wasn't dry, just having a lot of high quality hash that otherwise would have been It was incredible, but it could have been better in the sense that the shelf life was really affected where sometimes you'll have something really, really high quality that would start to butter up almost instantaneously and really doesn't have much of a shelf life at all. And a lot of times stuff just wasn't dried properly. So it was important to me. A lot of times that kind of hash is not as enjoyable to smoke, can be a lot harsher, it can really lose a lot of the flavor and the flavor can change as well. Yeah, and it would be really frustrating, especially if you spend a lot of money on some really good quality ash, you're really excited about it, and then it's just before you know it, it's not the same. So it became really important to me observing that and realizing that the importance of really properly and thoroughly drying the ash. So I did make a point to make sure I was doing that and kind of pride myself on on making sure it was properly dry. And by that time you were in the San Francisco area, right? Yes. Do you feel going back to what you were saying about getting some product sometimes that was really high quality, but that would grease out, for example, from let's say other producers and being in a place where really the scene was kind of starting to pop off a little bit. Was that important for you to be able to gauge your own drying skills? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was a learning process. And uh, yeah, I guess that's a good way to think about it. I never really thought about it that way. But yeah, it kind of helped push me in that direction for sure. 
Now you bring up the word or the idea of hash greasing up and you brought it up in reference to, for example, it not being dried correctly. How much of that do you think has to be with genetics versus, for example, if water gets trapped in the trichome or something along those lines? Well, you're saying greasing up. I was meaning buttering up because I think the like high quality hash will grease up sometimes instantaneously when it when it's not cold and that's not necessarily a bad thing that's just a reflection of the resin but then beyond that point when it when it starts to butter when it becomes opaque and it starts to get crumbly and all that i think that moisture can be a huge factor in that it's not always there's definitely terpenes the terpene profile of certain genetics definitely play a factor and like certain things that have extremely oily kind of a consistency usually really hot in terpenes can oftentimes butter up a lot faster not necessarily indicating that they haven't been dried properly especially in the time period we're talking about most of it was from not not being fully dry another interesting aspect that came up last time in our conversation was i think i began to get to know your brand Hashberry, because you used to run a super silver haze. And I tend to like hazes and it's not something that typically washes or people process. And one of the things that I didn't realize was that A, it came from dry material and that B, it was from outdoor material. And I told you that even looking back now, it's pretty impressive that your resin looked the way that it did. It didn't look like it came from dry material. And you mentioned that even you used to get comments that a lot of people thought your material was from fresh frozen. Do you feel that came primarily from being able to dry properly or was there also like a genetic component to that? Well, the super silver haze I ran, that was always indoor. But to answer your question, I think that's really, it's a reflection of the quality of the material more than anything. I don't necessarily think that it was because it was properly dried. I think even if it wasn't properly dried, it might still maintain the same look, but but the shelf life won't be the same. It won't be as stable and it will degrade a lot faster. But also just kind of the particular style of microplaning i think like you were saying like with air drying people's hash tend to have like more personality like more of a signature look to it and i think that's kind of what that has to do with that's the difference from like if you're comparing that to a freeze-dried hash is that when it's air dried there's some sort of separation that's being done by hand whether it's a sieve or a microplane and so many little things could influence potentially the way that looks in the end. So people's styles and technique, I think, can largely influence that. So it was probably more so to do with, I don't know, like my style of microplaning or just microplaning it like really finely, as, as fine as I possibly could, but trying to avoid like chunks, trying to make it basically because that's the point of the microplane is you want to break it down as finely as you can and expose as much surface area as possible 
to be able to spread it out thinly and evenly and dry it. So I think like the difference in the look comes down more to that, the way it's, it's microplaned in this case. Okay, cool. Yeah. And again, funny enough, going back to the idea that hazes don't typically do well, we brought up a topic that I haven't necessarily talked about, I don't feel in depth a lot, is the separation. And, and you brought up a good point in the sense that there's maybe different kinds of separation. But in this particular regard, we're just talking about how the capitate trichome separates from the stock. And you said that was one of the cleaner examples you've seen of separation. The super silver haze. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely in the plant's genetics, the anatomy of the trichome, the way that the gland is attached to the stalk, how easily it breaks off and how cleanly it breaks off, how easily those stalks break off of the plant or how firmly attached they are. So yeah, I think when you have the perfect storm of, of genetic factors there where, where it's a nice oily trichome head that breaks off easily and cleanly and the stalks don't necessarily, then it's, yeah, it's, it's a plant that when you're used to washing plants and, and you wash something like that, it's kind of like what I was saying where it's like, it's just, it feels like it wants to be washed and it's like, it wants to make cash. Like it's made for it. It makes sense. I think sour diesel is also one that's a lot like that. Do plants like that, which I've found to be, from talking to people, pretty rare, excite you? Very much so, yeah. And then when you got one like Super Silver Haze too, it's incredible. That's why it's just like, it's such a gem because that strain has been around for like about 30 years now for good reason. It's, it's just, it's incredible variety with such an incredible effect. That's the reason why it's been around so long. So, so a cutting of that, that hashes like that is just really something special, particularly, you know, what people call sativa, where it's this creative, motivational, uplifting, just inspiring high in a full melt form. It's, it's not as common. Totally agree on that for sure. And then you started doing something interesting with that particular variety and blending it with the Gorilla Glue 4, calling it the Grape Ape Haze, which I think is what we had communicated about a while back. Super Ape, Super Ape Haze. I always get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> inspired by the Lee Scratch Fairy album. What inspired you to start blending things? I just always liked doing it. And it seems like kind of like, like more of an art to me where it's like just beyond just making the hash. It's like being selective about what you might want to blend together. It's just, it's always been fun for me seeing really everything about it, but ultimately the end products and the effects and being able to manipulate that and play with that. I think it's just one more aspect of it that opens up a whole new world of possibilities and, and creativity in it that's just really awesome also the uniqueness it's like you can make granted every batch of hash is going to be unique in its own way but you can make blends that 
you know, something that's really just one time only, it's never going to be made again. Or if it is, it's not going to be the same, particularly if you have something with different phenotypes in it. It's like even more of a unique kind of one time only hash, which I think is pretty cool too. So relating to things that we've talked about recently, blends and separation, have you found a lot of strains that hash well, but it comes with a lot of stocks as well? Because I've, I've definitely seen a lot of hash that has a lot of stocks in it. Like you can literally almost see it. So relating that to blends, does that play a role even in making a decision of being able to blend hashes together, for example, in the sense of like, well, this would be cool, but this one is like way more stockier than this one is. Yeah, yeah, that would definitely play a role. But I would also argue that if a lot of stocks are ending up in the hash, then it doesn't hash well. That would be a big, big factor for me as far as considering if something does hash well. And I think genetics can play a role in that and also agitation. So if something's overly agitated, that could influence having too many stocks in the hash. But if genetically it's a factor that it's, it's just dumping a bunch of stocks in the hash, I wouldn't consider it a good washer, I don't think. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting, almost like qualification for a washer that I haven't necessarily heard, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, there's a line. Like, if it's, if it's affecting the quality of the finished product, and that's going to affect my determination of if I think it's a washer or not. Ultimately, it comes down to really considering all the factors, not just one, though. So since you bring it up, what are those factors for you? I mean, the most obvious ones would be the high, the experience, the terpenes, the flavor, the melt, the smoking experience, and uh, the cleanliness and the purity of it. I think those would be the, the biggest things where like, if there's a lot of stocks in it, that would, that would fall into that category. How pure of heads is it, if you will? Speaking of heads, I'm assuming when you were growing for flower and you were on overgrow, you had a different perspective than you do now on when you harvest your trichomes. <laughs> yes, very, very much so. I think back then, what we had learned was, was only to pay attention to the color of the glands and we were waiting for them to turn amber. And it kind of came down to preference. It's like, how stony do you like your weed? You know, some people swear you got to wait till like 50% of the heads are amber. Some people think it's cool with only 10%. You know, some people are counting like how many of them are cloudy. But that was really what we were looking at just because that's what we had learned. And I think things have changed a lot since then. But particularly for melt, for hash, solventless extraction, like, I think you want to harvest them at, at the peak of ripeness when, you know, kind of like fruit, like when they're the plumpest, the juiciest, because during the growth phase, they, you know, they'll get bigger and bigger and swell up where they're just filling with more oil, more terpenes and cannabinoids. And then they'll eventually reach a point where they're at the plateau, they're at the peak of that. And then they start to kind of shrink and shrivel up a little bit and lose some of that potency. So I think ideally you want to capture them at that, that peak moment. And through your experience 
what have you seen through the variety of cultivars that you've run being that peak size when it comes to microns? Does that vary from strain to strain? Like what, what the size of the trichome is when it's at its peak? Yes. Yeah, it definitely varies. The size of trichomes varies a lot from what I've seen from strain to strain. So some will just have a lot larger heads in general, some won't. But the one thing that's consistent is they, they'll all swell up to a point where they, they reach their, their max, their peak, and then it's kind of downhill from there. So knowing what you're growing and knowing the variety that you're working with can be really helpful for that reason. But I think to really to know a trichome and know when it's at its peak is really like the only way to really know a variety is, is to grow it again and again and have more experience with it and you'll be able to know it better. But you kind of have to take it past the peak to really know that that was the peak or how will you ever know? How will you know that it wasn't going to swell up bigger and that it's going to start to shrink? You kind of have to see that happen. And it also can be helpful to pay attention to different parts of the plant too, because for a while, I think people didn't even really consider that. Mostly they think, okay, you know, chop the plant when it's ready. But like a lot of other things, it's not necessarily always going to be ready at the same time. So you might see degradation starting on certain branches that's not necessarily happening on the others. So the more areas of the plant you pay attention to, I think the more helpful information you could potentially gather. On that front, have you ever taken down plants at different times for that reason? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like even uh, different parts of the same plant at different times, you know. That's one of the good things about having a smaller operation or smaller grows that you, you might be able to have more time to really give each plant just the absolute attention that it deserves and, and actually be able to, to do something like that. Whereas on a larger scale, it might not be reasonable at all. Yeah, you just told me not long ago, I think maybe during the smoke break, that that's part of the reason you've been able to give these slower growers a little bit more time and not necessarily push them because you are seeking that quality, essentially. Yeah, 100%. And I'm not I'm not doing it for, for any other reason. You know, I'm not doing it for profit. I don't have like certain numbers I have to meet or or a deadline that I have to make. So if I want to grow something that will take a month longer, I can do that. If it's for the quality, you know, I can do that. So having that freedom is, is definitely good if you're, if you're trying to just produce the highest quality that you can. I saw recently you posted something about, I think a 160 to 190 pool still being full melt. Is that about the highest that you've seen full melt? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen any like 190 or anything higher than that full melt. So back to my question kind of earlier, your full melt typically in what ranges does it fall? I'd say typically like 90 to 120. Sometimes oftentimes it's 73 is, is like five star. Sometimes it's it's like real full melt definitely special when when the 160 to 190 is is full melt in that particular plant was the 90 to 120 full melt as well the one that, that you're talking about that i posted 
Yeah, so that's what I think is really awesome about that is that's actually a mix of six different plants, two different strains. So the fact that that being considered, the 160 to 190 is, is full melt like that really, really blows my mind. Yeah, that is pretty cool and impressive. What are the bags that you pull typically? 45, 73, 90, 120, 160, 190, and I use a 220. It's the bubble bags. I've been using them for a while. Same set? No, no, no. But just as a, as a brand, you know, I, I first started making hash with the bubble bags, and yeah, I just really like them. Okay, cool. Yeah, people are always looking for recommendations, but yeah, I just was curious if it was the first one, like from the... the <laughs> no, no, I've been through a lot, a lot of sets, more than I can remember for sure, but it would be kind of cool to have that first one maybe as a relic, but I, I definitely don't. That's a weird question, and I, I'm sure it just depends on like how much you're processing and stuff, but typically how often do you replace bags? Yeah, I guess it depends on like how, how frequently I'm processing, but at least like every six months, I'd say, you know, depending on how much hash I'm running, but the bubble bags can, they can last a long time if you take care of them. You know, I've definitely kept the same set of bags for years, you know, use them over and over again. and They work great, but, you know, on a larger scale, I think it's something that you definitely want to replace kind of frequently over time i think just using them being exposed to the water the cold and and being pulled on and dried out over and over again a lot of times i i get concerned thinking like the mesh can't be the same as as it was when they're new and i feel like the importance of that is just so critical you want to make sure that that's in as good of a condition as possible you don't have to dive into this too much, but how do you take care of your bags while still having them in use? I use isopropyl and a toothbrush if I have to. Y'all yeah, get it in a like a large stainless steel bowl with some isopropyl and get the mesh in there. And oftentimes it just really cleans the resin right out with just that and then spraying cold water through it afterwards. But if there's some, some resin really stuck in there, it can be helpful to, to use the toothbrush and kind of clean it with the isopropyl. Now, when it comes to the melt of the hash itself, you said earlier some could be five-star in reference to other being six-star. How much of that do you feel comes primarily from the genetics? I would say a good deal of it has to do with the genetics. Without the genetics being there, you don't have anything to work with, really. So I think that's one of the largest factors, but everything else plays a role, too. I think the, the whole washing process and agitation and everything can have a lot of influence on the quality of the finished product, too. What about the inputs while cultivating it or growing the plants? Yeah, I think all, all of that is obviously a huge factor as well. The inputs are going to influence, first of all, the, the cleanliness, I think, of the resin, which is hugely important to me. That's why I'm, one of the big reasons why I'm a huge fan of the living soil is because at least 
I know that I've done the best I can possibly do to provide the plant with the, the purest, what I think is the purest, cleanest medium that it can be grown in as far as being free of chemicals or other unwanted things, you know, being in the finished product. There's that. That's a huge factor for me is, is how clean is the medicine, how clean is the resin, what's gone into it, because that's basically going to be what it's made of, right? Like it's, it's turning those nutrients into itself, if you will. But also it's like not necessarily only the inputs, but all of the growing factors and influences that's basically like you want those genetics which are also going to play a huge factor in what we're talking about here but you want them to be able to reach their full potential because it's like yeah you need the genetics to be there but if they're not reaching their potential also what are you getting or what is that worth you know so a huge reason why i would choose living soil personally is because i'm i'm trying to allow the genetics to be able to reach their full potential and kind of like what i was talking about earlier as far as like i think it being more ideal for the plant to be able to have access to whatever it wants at any time ultimately being happier healthier i think is helpful to really trying to reach the full genetic potential of the plant do you feel like a plant that produces six star melt and like you just mentioned there's a big genetic component to that. Is that plant's resin superior? Superior to like another genetic that's not producing the same star melt? Correct. I mean, it's, it's hard to say because there'd be so many factors that could go into that. You know what I mean? Like I could imagine a scenario where somebody might show me a flower that, that when you wash it, maybe it doesn't produce six star melt. But if, the high and the flavor on that flower, uh, if it's good enough, if it touches me in a way that like I, I could see myself being like, yes, like this one is better than another one, for example. Maybe you have a plant that produces some six-star full melt that doesn't really have that much of a remarkable high flavor. I could totally see one being better that doesn't necessarily produce six-star full melt. It's like, okay, well this resin is still undeniably better. I guess it depends how you're enjoying it, how you're smoking it. Like, let's say you're only smoking it as hash, then maybe not. But everything said and done, yeah, I could see that. Okay, cool. Yeah, interesting. Well, I think this could be a great opportunity for a second smoke break. You down? Yes. Cool. Shout out to our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. We can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. If you wash hash or you press rosin, use the most trusted bags in hash, Rosin Evolution, used all over the country from large to small producers, many of whom we had the pleasure of hanging out with at the Smoking Jacket, which we want to thank our friends at Rosin Evolution for helping bring to life. They always have what you need in stock. Their quality control makes sure you get what you ordered and their outstanding customer service makes your experience that much better. So if you're looking for the best deal in hash, grab a set of Rosin Evolution full mesh wash bags made of the same high quality material that their highly trusted rosin bags are and save 5% on your entire order 
and support the podcast by using the code THI710 at checkout. Again, THI710 altogether saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's talk a little bit about how the evolution of dabbing went along with your evolution as not only a consumer, but a hash maker. I mean, really, it's, it's incredible how far we've come as a community as far as hash and, and glass. So much has changed in such a relatively short amount of time. And it's really unique, I think, to hash and to cannabis because it's something that is just really exploding in a way that is unlike anything else that we've ever seen anything like in, in our lifetime, just really coming out of the shadows and, and becoming like a legitimized industry. and Just really everybody collaborating together on, on it and constantly coming up with new innovations and new ideas, everything. Yeah, it's really crazy how it, it started from basically, you know, pe- people doing hot knife hits to like titanium skillet where dabbing oils, like black BHO, black hash oils, like on red hot skillets, you know, to titanium, like that wasn't being carb capped. And then people eventually started learning like, oh, we're doing it too hot. You know, like actually let it cool down a little bit. Carb capping became a thing, you know, honey holes, Honey holes were huge, man. I was big on the Joe Halen honey hole for a long time. Just great for smoking hash. People also then discovering about Q-tipping. Like for the longest time, we were just blasting, <laughs> blasting the nails with the with the red hot charred dab on there. It's like, all right, you ready for another one? Crank the torch up and just blast that shit off. And it's like all this black smoke fuming off of it, and you're just like, whatever, you know. <laughs> So eventually, like people learned, like oh, you can like you can actually wipe that residue off, and people just chaz their nails. Like that was a thing, you know. Everybody's nail was all like grayed out, and everything and chaz. Yeah, it's just crazy how much has changed. Like people started keeping their nails fresh, Q-tipping, lower temperatures, carb caps, and then the bubble cap came out. You know, with the directional flow, turp pearls, all that, and then the the turp slurper. That's a crazy, crazy thing. And just watching the evolution of that too, because that's another thing, like it was out for a long time before I I ever even tried one. It seemed like kind of a weird thing at first, but then at least from my perspective, it seemed like people kind of realized like how to use it more after it came out and start seeing like valve marbles, pillars and glass blowers really just coming out with all sorts of ingenious things like, to make this nail something that's just mind-blowingly incredible. Like, it's yeah, it's crazy how uh, effective and uh, efficient it is, I think, as a little, as a nail, as a vaporization device. Yeah, but you look at the evolution of all that happening in such a short amount of time. And on top of that, like, basically the invention of rosin, you know, in the middle of all that, like, yeah, pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome, and it does seem to happen pretty fast. We talked about this actually last time where I asked you, like, do you think that it could keep 
growing at this pace? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to continue. It might even get faster just because it's like becoming more of a, a big thing, really. And solventness has really blown up in popularity to a point where almost like I feel like I could have never imagined or, or hoped for. Like, you know, it's something I've always been hoping would happen. And it's been a personal mission of mine to try to spread awareness and education about solventness. And just seeing it really catch on the way it did and the way it has and the way it is, is really incredible to the point where everybody wants the, the live rosin now, like not even knowing what it is. They're like, yeah, I heard of that shit. That's what I want. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the the rosin becoming part of the picture was was a huge factor in that. And, you know, like finally removing the cuticle and getting that pure oil out of the solventness is really what a lot of people were after, I think, and really just trying to mimic BHO and make a product that was as close as possible to that. That's a pure oil that's made solventlessly with ice and water and pressure and heat. Like, yeah, it's, it's been a game changer because now people have that. And it's solidness, and I think it's a huge factor as to why it's, it's really catching on. Um, more people everywhere in the world are realizing it's the ultimate form of uh, cannabis concentrate, really. Yeah, it's interesting. We were discussing during our break about how I've agreed with something that Frenchie used to say that here in North America, it really started out as a concentrates culture. And like you said, it was like the hash and then eventually the rosin was trying to almost mimic these different hydrocarbon extraction forms like butane. And now it's kind of evolved into its own little thing. And I'm going to give you a little flack in this because extraction is in your name. Do you see making hash as an extraction or more of a collection? You know, I've always looked at it as an extraction. I guess it depends on how you interpret the definition of extraction. But, you know, it's a collection where you are taking taking the trichome heads out of the cannabis, off of the cannabis, and collecting them and isolating them, and then concentrating the active ingredients in the cannabis plant. So I always kind of look, look at it as an extract just because that's what it is. It's, it's a concentrated form of this plant. But I, I also understand why people like Frenchie, you know, he always said it's, it's not an extract. And I understand that perspective as well. I guess it's different interpretations. For sure. It, and it's to some degree, it's almost like semantics and technicalities to some degree, but always interesting to discuss nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Rosin, on the other hand, for sure is an extraction, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say there's any doubt about that. Do you feel once it goes from being in the cuticle to being out of the cuticle in its oil form, it changes, at least, for example, how it affects you? Without a doubt, yeah. And I don't think that's even close to being completely understood by us yet but 
yeah, that's undeniable without a doubt. Like it changes pretty much in every way. The way it smokes, the way it tastes, the way it affects you. And then I think biologically, chemically, it's it's got to be constantly being altered. I mean, there's no way that, that the trichome head's even intact. Like I'm sure there's there's some changes going on in there. It's natural. But once you, like you said, remove the cuticle and then take all the contents of those glands and mix them together in oil, they're now all mixed together in a way that they weren't in their natural state. And to think that chemical composition wouldn't be changing and chemical reactions happening and all that going on, to think that wouldn't happen wouldn't make sense. Like that's, you're definitely influencing that progression, I think, by turning it into a oil like rosin. Do you still enjoy rosin? Yeah, definitely. I love it, but I do enjoy hash more. If you had an ideal breakdown of hash to rosin ratio that you were smoking, what would it be? Oh, man. (laughs) I never thought about that. I mean, I guess it depends on what it is, right? Like the quality of it. Like like if there's a rosin that's like, oh, man, this stuff is like really special or it's a special strain that maybe I didn't have available in hash form that would influence that for sure. But in an ideal world, and it's like a phenomenal hash and phenomenal rosin, I would just imagine myself going for the hash over and over again until maybe I get tired of it. And I'm like, all right, let me see, like, switch it up a little bit, do something a little different. Then maybe I'd go for some rosin. But that's a good question. I don't know, maybe maybe one out of 10 times, maybe less. So being a hash guy in the sense that you personally enjoy it more, do you believe that some genetics resin is better represented and rosin yeah i i could say i think for sure some might be better as rosin it does come down to personal preference too i think but yeah some that might not make as quite melty hash might actually be more enjoyable as rosin i could see that for sure but like i was kind of telling you before i could also see myself choosing something that has incredible flavor as a five-star melt over rosin and still enjoying that raw unpressed flavor over uh you know the pressed version even if it's not 100 percent full melt. so yeah it could go either way right yeah there's always different variables kind of switching gears a little bit let's talk about how your actual hash making skills develop over time because you mentioned to me last time you like to work quickly which is something that i've heard from quite a few people but recently i had an interview where a hash maker was pretty comfortable leaving their material in the water for a good amount of time and they didn't see a lot of difference between shorter washes and longer washes but from speaking to you it definitely sounded like you try to get your material in and out of the water as soon as possible. Why is that? There's a lot of reasons involved in that. I can't necessarily say that that I've seen like hash particularly 
degrade from being in the water too long versus another wash where it wasn't in the water as long. And I'm, I'm realizing, oh, okay, don't leave it in the water as long. But just it just makes sense to me if I think about it, why I wouldn't want it to be in the water for any longer than it has to be. I think obviously the temperature is going to influence that as well. The colder the water is, the more it's going to be preserved and the less of an impact it'll have. But also when you're washing cannabis on water, you can clearly see that there are things being leached into or released into the water because oftentimes you can clearly see it change color, whether it's, you know, turning dark from anthocyanins or it's turning green from chlorophyll. The water is definitely changing from having cannabis in it and it's definitely changing the cannabis as well. And on top of that, if it's in the water and you now have the resin submerged in water that's having chlorophyll or other things leached into it that could potentially contaminate the hash because it's submerged in the water that's now not pure water you know we go all these extensive lengths to use the purest water we possibly can reverse osmosis reverse osmosis ice and then you're you've got your resin now sitting in contaminated water potentially yeah i think this those are all reasons why you would want to minimize the amount of time that it's in there use the water for for what you're using it for and because that's really the only purpose we're using it you know we're using it as as a carrier basically as a vessel to dare i say extract uh to remove these trichome heads you know from the cannabis and you want to just use it for that basically and uh i think get it out you get it dry as soon as possible this likely varies obviously with like the amount of material and maybe some other factors, but what does a typical wash look like for you time-wise? So I would say I definitely, I don't, I don't rush it. Like the thing that I would rush and have like an urgency time-wise would be the amount of time that it's in the water unnecessarily, you know, but as far as everything else, I tend to be very much a perfectionist and Sometimes to my disadvantage, I think I will really take my time doing things and just completely focus and make sure I do it as, as well as I possibly can, where I might take longer than somebody else. Like, for example, sometimes people would make fun of me for taking a long time to roll a joint because I just, you know, I take my time. I'm admiring the smelling every piece I'm breaking up, just like, mm, you know, trying to roll the perfect joint. People are like, come on. But I'm like that in a lot of ways, and it definitely carries into making hash as well. So. I really try to pay as close attention to detail in in every aspect as possible. So from, I think from start to finish, generally, I mean, it can be like six to eight hours for like a full wash, like doing everything, you know, not including the drying time, obviously. And as a side note, you are using a freeze dryer now. Yes. Yeah, I've been using a freeze dryer for, for a bit now. So each wash cycle is about how long not to keep pressing the point? I mean, it depends, but we'll vary. You know, I don't, I don't do the same amount of time for every wash, but usually first wash anywhere from like 8 to 12 minutes on average. Um, I'll usually do longer second and third washes, maybe twice as long. Will the amount of washes you do depend 
on the material or do you have kind of a set amount of washes? Stays pretty consistent, but I'll, I'll be feeling and reading the material as I'm washing it. You know, also, you know, certain things you might know better than others, but I'm always looking at what I'm getting from, from each wash, from each bowl and kind of determining where to go from there. You know, sometimes after the first wash, you see the way something washes and, and you might decide to change out uh, some of the bags you're using, you know, kind of adjust accordingly. Do you mean that being like during your second wash or the next time you wash that same material? Really both. Like if it's the first time you're washing something, then you'll know better for the second wash. But if it's also, if it's the first time, if you're washing something unfamiliar, you know, depending on what it's fitting out, you might decide to take out or add certain bags. Do you feel like that's one of the benefits of growing a variety over time and getting to know it like you were mentioning earlier? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. One of one of the many benefits of, of being able to grow a variety enough to become familiar with it or wash a variety enough to, to get to know it. I'm assuming that you're working with fresh frozen right now? Yes. Everything I've been working with is single source, fresh frozen, grown all myself. Do you still take time to soak or rehydrate that material before washing? Yeah, usually like five to 10 minutes. I don't know if it's really rehydrating, but yeah, I definitely give it a little bit of a soak, not even close to what it would be for dry material. For dry material, it's, it's crucial that you want to rehydrate the material before you start any agitation. And I don't know if I just do it out of habit because it, you know, roots really ingrained running a lot of dry material that the importance of that soak. Cause I've definitely thought about that more recently. If it's even necessary at all, part of me feels like it's really not that necessary. And part of me was even thinking, am I degrading it a little bit by letting it sit in the water for that five to 10 minutes before I start agitation? Is it completely unnecessary? But yeah, I've still, I've been doing it, but kind of playing with the idea in my mind of seeing how necessary it is. You mentioned the dry material and it hydrating in the water. Do you feel like dry material rehydrates and fresh frozen? Maybe not. Yeah, because the dry material is completely dry and it's brittle. And when you rehydrate it, it's, it's wet again. You know, the leaves aren't going to crack and break when, when you bend them like they would when it's dry. But the fresh frozen has not been dried whatsoever. It's a live plant chopped and frozen immediately. So in my mind, I think that it doesn't necessarily need to be rehydrated. But I guess my mentality behind it has been that when it's rock solid frozen like that, it's going to be like hard and rigid. And part of me feels like you let it soak in the water, even though the water's ice cold, it's going to soak up some of that water and just kind of loosen up a little bit. You know, I make sure to not have it, the material compacted in a brick. I think that's important to have the, the stuff loose. So for that reason, you know, if, if you had a, a block of fresh frozen that's been frozen solid into a brick, I would say you would want to soak that and like let it get enough water so it's able to break up 
when it's agitated rather than have all that surface area not exposed on the inside. But I guess my mentality is more like you don't want to start agitating it like exactly fresh out of the freezer because it might be a little rigid and have more of a likelihood to break some plant material, if that makes sense. It does. And kind of like looking back now, I'm curious if you feel like having this prior experience with dry material has helped you as a hash maker, even currently almost maybe by informing you, like you said earlier about like the plants, you know, if you don't take it too far, you won't know where the heads are going to land. Is it one of those things Mm. like working through that dry material, you learn some things that have only made you a more skilled hash maker or at least more intuitive in hash making? I think so. I think the more experience you can get from as many different angles as possible, the better Then the deeper of an understanding you can kind of gather about the plant and the process and what's going on and what could potentially happen um, to contaminate the hash or what to potentially do to make it cleaner. This is a bit random, but since you brought up the word cleaner, you do say you have a preference for indoor hash. Yeah. Yeah. In all my experience, I do tend to prefer indoor, both in flower and hash, I think. Like I was telling you, um, I definitely think there's some magic about sun-grown in certain areas. I think, especially in Northern California, there's definitely some magical spots that produce some really incredible resin. And, you know, theoretically, thinking about it, it's like the sun is incredible. The the earth like these plants were made to be in the earth to be under the sun there's no denying that no but particularly also since you mentioned about cleanliness there's something about the cleanliness of indoor resin just tends to be a lot easier to keep it pristinely clean than than outdoor although there's some some pretty good light depth some pretty good greenhouse pretty clean resin for sure in my personal experience, I've definitely had more of an affinity from the to indoor. Yeah, that's fair. Well, dude, I'm still having fun. One more smoke break, and then we can wrap it up when we come back. Sounds good. All right, cool. Shout out to our sponsors, Rocky Mountain Seed Bank, who you can visit at rockymountainhigh719.org. If you're looking for genetics, grab them from a trusted source in Rocky. He only carries gear he grows from breeders he believes in, including ones that produce genetics that are suitable for the ice water process, like Bloom Seed Co. and Turb Fountain Genetics. If you don't have time to hunt seeds, Rocky has recently made some of his most prized cuts available to immediately add a keeper to your stable. So again, if you're looking to add heat to your garden, visit RockyMountainHigh719.org and save 25% off your entire order, both on seeds and cuts, by using the podcast savings code, the letters THI. Again, using the promo code THI saves you a quarter off the price of your entire order at RockyMountainHigh719.org. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's talk a little bit about hash berry extracts, because you mentioned earlier that part of your motivation in all this has been to kind of spread the knowledge and share this 
with the public and people. And that, that kind of was what birthed Ashbury. How did you get to a point where you were like, all right, I should probably make a brand or, or something? It was in summer of 2013. Like we were talking about earlier when dabbing was really exploding in popularity and there's a lot of people just ripping this dark black oil on red hot titanium nails and not really thinking twice about it, not really knowing better. And just based on my experience with bubble hash and knowing the melt factor, the possibilities, and then that combined with the microplane tech, um, what we were talking about earlier, um, Matt Rice shared that roll it up thread. And it was a combination of, of those factors, realizing that this could be done really well with incredible quality, dried properly, something that melts completely and can be dabbed and it's made with ice and water it was really it seemed like almost nobody was aware of this fact and it almost seemed like my obligation you know something i was really passionate about to spread awareness about and to really just completely pursue to the, the fullest extent i could and yeah just just making starting that brand and, and everything allowed me to be able to just provide to patients at the time and be able to do what I really loved basically full-time for, for a good period. So in a way, when you first made Bubble Patch, I think you said around 2005 or 2006 when you weren't drying it too well, let's say. And then dabbing back in California at that point, but now you're in NorCal, dabbing kind of starts taking off and you're seeing people dab BHO or darker oils then it's like this weird thing where you referenced the bubble hash that you had experienced with in the past, realizing that maybe it wasn't properly dried, but there was like this meltiness factor and like almost like a light bulb goes off being like, well, why can't we just dab the bubble hash? Yeah, totally. I mean, what made it, I think the most obvious was the first, the first dab I did a bubble hash for sure. And I had been dabbing BHO for probably a couple of months at that point before I had smoked any hash. So my body was used to BHO, used to dabbing that. And when I took this first rip of some, you know, a dab of some homegrown bubble hash, it was just so apparent, the difference. Like I, I felt it instantly travel through my entire body and just really touch my soul and resonate and vibrate there. Like, like nothing else I had experienced in, in a while. And it was just so clear how much better it was undeniable. It's hard to even explain, but it just, the effect of it felt so wholesome. If that makes sense, like really incredible in comparison. I guess that was a de defining moment for sure. Were you still dabbing at pretty high temps at that point? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like that contributes to, for example, how quote-unquote high you get or not? Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if you've ever done a glowing hot dab like that, yeah, can be pretty, pretty intense for sure. Do you think that one of the kind of unattractive things to people about smoking bubble hash 
especially at those kind of temperatures, was the fact that it wasn't going to taste as good as the oils per se. Yeah, I think that would make a lot of sense. But at the same time, I would also argue I don't think the oils were tasting good at that point. Fair. It was just a matter of like getting high for most people, I think. Like at that point, red hot dabs, no Q-tipping, nothing like that. Like I don't think anybody was really dabbing for the flavor at all. It was really just an effect kind of thing at that point. Do you feel like now you could almost say that people dab more for flavor than for effect? Yeah, very much so. I think that's a good point. I mean, it's a it's a touchy subject, I think, for a lot of people. but. Um, it's interesting you say that because it seems like it's almost like a majority of people nowadays are primarily influenced by flavor, which I understand and I am as well in a lot of ways. But, you know, I think it's the effect that matters most for sure. And it's even, it's, I find it a little bit difficult for me to even say that because I'm thinking about the flavor as I say it, you know, like it's part of the experience too. And I think that the more that we've educated ourselves over the years, like the more that we've learned that the flavor is actually directly related to the experience and the way the terpenes modulate the cannabinoids and the entourage effect and all that. So ultimately, what I began to appreciate cannabis for was the effect and not the flavor. And I think that's the most profound, life-altering, positive impact it can really have on on humanity is is through the effects and i think that's first and foremost but the flavor is a huge huge factor too you know and that's it's also one of the amazing things about cannabis is that you can get both you know you can you can smoke some hash that tastes absolutely exquisite like more more satisfying and more complex than any food you could ever get in any restaurant on earth just unbelievable flavor that you can't even explain. And then you can also get a, an incredible effect that can really just change people's lives. So yeah, I guess it's cool. You can, you can get both out of it. You can, you can get one or the other, maybe even both at the same time. Yeah. Like uh, my buddy simply Adam said recently, cannabis is a really dynamic plant and it's pretty cool to see as like you said earlier, things come into the light, how more and more of these things are slowly understood or at least considered versus in the past. Definitely. It's, it's incredible how dynamic it is. There's nothing else on earth like it in that sense where even just the broad range of turkeys, turkey expressions that you can have in this one plant, it's incredible. Complete polar opposites and everywhere in between. It's, it's mind-blowing. So this is a weird question, but going back to the idea of blending, do you think when you blend, you can create a spectrum of cannabinoids and terpenes that would be really hard, if maybe not impossible to achieve by breeding? I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, you definitely could. And I think it's really cool and fun to be able to play around with that and experiment with that. I think there's potential that you could find something in breeding, create something with breeding that that's going to be similar or the same, but it will not always work the same. When you're crossing genetics, a lot of things can happen. Things normally won't be as you expect them to come out. 
and it can mean one way or the other. It can create something completely unique on its own. Sometimes one will just dominate over the other, but when you're blending something, you kind of know more what's going to happen. Not always. Sometimes you'll, you'll be surprised by certain things too, but it's much more predictable, I think. And yeah, they're totally different. And they're both, both really cool aspects. And then being able to play with both, I think, would be the best of both worlds. Like a good example of something like that is like how I was telling you, I think papaya and Skittles are two of the best tasting strains that, that make good hash that are, you know, like circulating in the community right now. And I thought maybe the combination of both of them, you know, could make something that's just some, one of the most incredible tasting things possible right now. And uh, I did take some uh, Skittles and some papaya hash that I was able to get my hands on, mix them together, kind of one-to-one ratio, just to see how it was, you know, and it was as good or better than I would have hoped. So I was kind of reassured in that aspect. At least I knew that those two terpene profiles could potentially go together very, very well. You know, you like you cross them together, who knows what's going to happen as far as that goes. You're not just going to get one 50-50 blend of both of the full expressions of those terpene profiles, obviously. But you, who knows you, what you might find. You might find a lot of different awesome things. Yeah, and I think in that sense, I don't know much about this, but likely comes down also to like the populations that you're able to grow of these genetics and being able to find, you know, standouts within a, a large population. And, and it also, I'm assuming, affects different things like, you know, how do these genetics uh, work out and how do they affect like the cuticles? Are the cuticles any thicker on these particular waxier on these particular ones uh, versus some of the other ones? So I do think it's kind of a different thing. I, I do think, like you said, there could probably be something that's like almost equivalent that's bred, but there's also like the subtle variations of going from crop to crop. Even the blends would change because each individual plant is kind of doing a different thing every run or whatever. I mean, just the nature of it being a plant consistency is you know, there's just going to be some variance for sure, crop to crop, just like any any kind of agricultural thing. Do you think that's a cool thing? I mean, maybe it's not necessarily as a cultivator or a hash maker if you're relying on certain numbers or something along those lines. But outside of that, do you think it's cool that there are these subtle variations? Yeah, I do think it's cool. Like, there are certain batches of things that I, I remember from 15, maybe even 20 years ago because they were so good. So, yeah, a lot of people talk about like their favorite strain or a lot of people will say, oh, I don't like that strain. If you just mention the name of a strain and oftentimes it's because of a batch they've had. It can go either way in that sense. But yeah, the batch oftentimes can have a stronger influence than, than the strain in some ways. So people don't always take that into account or aren't fully aware of that, especially as a consumer from a consumer standpoint, unless you're involved in the production cultivation. It's kind of, I mean, if you smoke enough weed, you'd think you would get, <laughs> you'd catch on eventually too. That some batches like are just smacking compared to others, but right. Yeah. 
So kind of like the heyday of Hashberry was during Prop 215. Like I said earlier, I met you at the Emerald Cup. I definitely picked up your stuff from different places, including a place called Emerald Farms, I think out in Leightonville. I don't know if it's even... Yeah, in uh, Hopland. In Hopland, there, yeah. And uh, you mentioned to me the other day that that was kind of like the peak of being able to do what you love at that scale. And that, you know, obviously as things changed, the legality changed, that's changed for you. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of going through the ups and downs of like being at an all-time high and then having to come down off that because you kind of had to? Yeah, I mean... It was it was great being able to share medicine with that many people. And, you know, it was a great feeling doing what I was really passionate about full time, basically, and really enjoying that, living my dream, and in a lot of ways. But yeah, it's just been a natural progression of things, I guess. Like, you could say it was it was the heyday in that sense, the way it was, but. Also, where I'm at now is, you know, really fantastic. And in a lot of ways, just the way I'm able to grow, like, granted, not on the same scale, I'm unfortunately not really able to, to share it with people like, like I was able to before. But the quality is just getting better and better. And that's what I've always been after. So being able to get to this point where, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to, to both, without a doubt. But to be able to to be at the point now where I'm able to do everything, cultivation to processing everything. It's just kind of where I, I really have wanted to be the whole time. You know, it's to me the ultimate in a lot of ways. So I'm just really stoked to be able to do what I'm doing now. I definitely want to be moving in that direction where I'm able to do it more and more. Yeah, I'm just really grateful for, for where I'm at now. It's definitely good to be able to produce the kind of quality I'm able to and finally get to cracking some of these seeds that I've been wanting to crack. So that's really exciting for me too. Yeah, you told me you have quite an extensive collection that dates back a good number of years. Yeah, basically back to like 2003 when I first started getting seeds i don't have i think the oldest i have probably from like 05 06 but yeah i've definitely been collecting them for a while and not not been able to grow them fast enough that's for sure no that's cool i'll definitely have a few questions about some of the things that you hope to pop in a little bit but one of the things that i'm curious about is when you were operating under 215 and you were able to get more product out to patients was any of that single source or were you primarily washing material for other cultivators i was washing for other cultivators i did do some single source but that was just a small personal home grow that never made it to dispensaries i'm curious how you went about establishing those relationships with cultivators? Really just networking through the community, meeting people, 
through through mutual friends, through dispensaries. Yeah, just kind of happened naturally, organically, and in a pretty cool way, I would say. The more people that that's it kind of just snowballed in a sense that like the more people that smoked the hash got excited about it eventually somebody that grew would see it or smoke it and be like oh man i want to see what my material would do uh, or they you know they really like the way the hash smoked and wanted to collaborate yeah you said a lot of people were super resistant to freezing for example the super silver haze, which you mentioned earlier, was actually indoor. The people were like, no way, we're not, <laughs> we're not freezing this. Definitely a lot of people, especially the more people that have been doing it for a while, kind of like more old school in their ways. Like they're just like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, <laughs> it's one thing to wash the dry material and they know what it is, but like, a lot of people are like, so you're saying it's going to be like five times as heavy? Like, how do I know that? How do I know how much it really is? You know, like they're just, they don't feel comfortable uh, guessing that or, you know, believing that it's all going to be the same. Yeah, that's totally understandable. Another point I've talked about this lightly with other people, and we talked about this the other day, is like the price of flour at that point versus the demand for hash also definitely affected that I feel. And then in the case of the super silver haze, I thought it was particularly interesting because I asked you if you thought if it had been fresh frozen, might it have washed worse? And, you know, obviously it's all hypotheticals at this point, but you said that possibly. Yeah, I guess there's no way to really know. Like there's a good chance that it might've washed better too. There's only one way to find out really. Air, yeah. Now that you've had experience with both fresh frozen and dry, do you feel like each of them is a different product? Yeah, they're definitely different. I don't think it's really fully understood exactly why, but they're definitely different. It's interesting because the resin is, I mean, it's dried in both situations, right? But in one situation, it's dried on the plant. And then it's washed off and then it's dried again. In another situation, it's not dried. It's washed fresh and then it's dried after it's washed off the plant. I guess the clear advantage to fresh frozen, considering that, would seem to be that it's it hasn't been dried and then dried again after it's been gotten wet. But yeah, they're both dried. A lot of people think like, or I've heard people say that oh, maybe you shouldn't smoke fresh frozen because isn't there a reason that you dry the cannabis and, you know, you want some of those volatile terpenes to evaporate or something along those lines. But it's like, really, you're you're washing it fresh, but then you are drying the resin afterwards. So that similar, obviously not the same, but similar process is occurring. How about the fact that when you're fresh freezing, or you're doing fresh frozen, better said. You're almost like flash freezing the material to conserve where the drying, there's, you know, the drying process in itself, I think inherently is quote unquote degrading the resin. So there is that difference that even when you're drying 
this resin two times over, you're drying a different type of trichome head in a different state versus the fresh frozen. That is a very good point. And that's definitely going to determine the way the finished product smokes, I would say. Yeah, I would have to agree. I don't know, like you said, in which way, and I don't think necessarily anybody really knows quite yet, but I do feel like they are different things. I've noticed with the difference between dry and fresh frozen hashes, the fresh frozen seems to frequently almost like it cures more than a dry would. So it might have to do with the way that it's dried from, like you were saying, a different type of resin head or not a different type, but it's in a different state, right? When it's being dried. But I've noticed something about fresh frozen where after it's jarred and allowed to, to rest in the freezer for several days or a week that something about it changes for sure, where frequently it seems to get a little bit better. In, in my experience, if you're dabbing it fresh out of the freeze dryer or fresh off the racks or maybe even a day or two after it's been pulled versus when it's been sitting in the freezer in a jar for a week or so, oftentimes almost seems like, like more of the flavor, more of the terpenes kind of balance out and, and kind of homogenize and, and the flavor kind of comes out. It almost sounds weird to say, but I've noticed that more with fresh frozen ash than dried. Yeah, that's a cool observation. Well, Adam, I appreciate you hanging out with me so long. I've been having a good time, but I'll start winding it down now. For sure, man. Me too. It's been fun talking. It has, man. It's been a blast. It's been really nice getting to talk to you a couple times. Going back to the seeds, what are some of the seeds that you specifically are excited about popping and going through? Oh, man. <laughs> so many. The next ones I was thinking about popping are some ChemD hybrids. I have some, some ChemD across the triangle cush and some not-so-dogs headman across the ChemD from Inspecta from CSI Humboldt. I was thinking about popping them next. I've been trying to find like a really nice Skittles kind of plant for a few years now. I went through some rainbow belts, some of the Pearl Loco and been really liking the moonbow crosses but man there's so many seeds like i just love seeds some of the ones i'm most excited about are uh, ogkbbx one it's uh ogkb cross the dositos from archive just because ogkb is one of my absolute favorites of all time i love that and uh really stoked about those seeds i have some triangle mints from seed junkie it's what wedding cake is. It's a it's a cut of the triangle means. So I think it could be some really good stuff in those too. I'm excited about those. A bunch of stuff from Seed Junkie. A bunch of Skittles crosses I'm excited about. A few more packs of uh, rainbow belts I'm excited to go through. Some old ones too, like some original haze crosses I have from, from early 2000s. A bunch of haze stuff that I'm really excited to get into eventually, hopefully find another haze washer like the super silver haze that would be amazing also the i said sea junkie a lot but the the animal mints bx1 uh have a bunch of those from him we found some good stuff and i'm really excited to see more of those too 
really there's just so many like i could go off about the seeds <laughs> i think seeds seeds are like one of the best things on earth really if it comes down to it like forget about money and possessions and all that like if you're in some type of like apocalyptic situation like what's the most valuable thing you could have on earth i think seeds are one of them like the potential in seeds is enormous it's just they're incredible what they are yeah that's a great point i agree i never really thought about it that way yeah especially cannabis too <laughs> do you enjoy trying and smoking other people's hash oh yeah definitely like we we talked about before like i've always been like i want to try everything good you know i want to try it all for sure I'm always interested in finding the best, you know, it's been a thing for me for sure. So finding new things always excites me. And also, you know, just seeing what, what people are able to produce too is also awesome to me, being able to see some of the quality that other people are producing. I love it. What were some of the standout brands for you in let's call it the last 10 years? Oh man, that's a good question. There's a lot. Definitely from the early days, full flavor, trichome heavy, res heads, Humboldt Organic Collective. I'm a big fan of Pua. Those were the ones that I guess really stood out to me from from those days. Funny enough. Although Camden doesn't know this, and he might after this, you freeze-dried after seeing his hash that had been freeze-dried for the first time, right? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Like, I was, I was micro-planning for a while, and everybody was using freeze-dryers for a few years. I was still micro-planning, although a lot of people told me that it looked like it was freeze-dried. But it wasn't until I saw his amnesia haze at the Emerald Cup. It was, uh, yeah, 2017. And he came by my booth and he showed me the jar and I was just like, what? I was completely blown away. Like, it was the best freeze-dried hash I had seen. It's funny, really funny now, like, thinking about it because he doesn't use the freeze-dryer. He air-dries. So <laughs> it's really hilarious. <laughs> but it was just incredible. The smell was absolutely phenomenal. You know, I, I do love haze, so it just really blew me away. And, just looking at it, it looked like just perfect. Like it was dried and every trichome head was just intact and looked absolutely beautiful. And I was, yeah, it, it was for sure. There's no doubt in my mind. It was that moment. I was like, okay, I, I want to try using a freeze dryer. So props to him for sure. So you've been using it for a while now. Are you pretty happy with the freeze dryer? Yeah. I definitely like it. I think it's a, it's an awesome tool. It definitely changed the game in a lot of ways, made it easier for people to really properly dry hash. I think the coolest thing about it is just the fact that like the no contact kind of thing about it where you can dry the, the trichomids where they, they really haven't touched anything and they're, they're as intact as possible. And I'm really all about that you know always have been even before making hash 
when I learned about the resin, I was really just all about like not touching the plants, not disturbing the buds, not brushing up against them, where I'd see a lot of people just squeeze them and smell them. And it's like, oh, like I would just cringe seeing that, you know, just knowing what I know about the resin and how important and how fragile it is. That was even before I started making ash. So I feel like the freeze dryer kind of gives you the ability to carry that over into the the final product where it's like you're you've got some some resin heads that are sitting in the jar they're totally dried cleanly removed from the plant and they haven't really been touched by anything that's incredible you know like that's really the ultimate goal in a lot of ways i'm not trying to talk down on the air dried hash i think it's awesome you know like there's no denying that but there's also just yeah there's something cool about having them completely untouched intact like that. Do you think that there's any value in doing it both ways with the same or similar material to have a different presentation and possibly a different experience? Yeah, definitely. If I had more space, I would probably do that, you know, but that's a really cool idea to me. I think to be able to really know a hash and, and a cultivar like that, like where you can try the air dried and the freeze dried hash. I think that's really cool. And then also be able to see and feel the differences in those two types of hash too. Definitely. Especially nowadays, I think for a lot of people that might not have been able to try air dried hash or haven't had it in a while for that reason too, would be even cooler. So we brought this up last time a little bit in the sense that you're obviously super passionate about not only cannabis, but cultivating, making hash and having it be the best possible representation of itself. And then we talked about the fact you're doing this now in this kind of ideal situation where you get to do it all. You have all the control. It is small scale. You can focus on quality. But I asked you if there were the opportunity for you to do this on a full-time basis in more of a commercial setting, would that change the dynamic and the passion for the work? I mean, it would change the dynamic for sure. I don't think anything could change the passion. That's something that I thought about where it's like, if I was in a, you know, working in a situation for a corporation that didn't care about the plant, was just in it for profit. I was forced to do things that I didn't feel were, were good or right, making the hash. Like, I wouldn't enjoy being in a situation like that. And, you know, I would worry about, like, having to do something like that for work and then getting a bad association with making hash and being less enjoyable when I do it on my own. But and I don't even know if that would be a thing, but when it comes down to it, I just would want to be working with the right type of people, you know, but regardless, I just love it so much. Like, I think it's something I would be happy doing either way, like just making hash and getting more experience, like more experience I have with it better is the way I see it. Like, I feel like I can't get enough experience and I'm still learning every day like constantly the more angles i can experience from like the better 
depth of understanding I can have about the plan. Yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of positive things about it. I definitely want to be spending more of my time making ash. Yeah, I think that would only be a good thing for the people based on the work that you've been putting up recently and the work that I've known you from the past, which obviously that's evolved too. And like my experience has evolved too, but I've always known you for putting out really high grade hash. Well, thanks, man. That means a lot to me. I appreciate that. This is one of those weird questions. If you had to pick one string in hash form and that's all you could have, what would it be? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, that's totally not a fair question. But, but I mean, what's the situation here? Am I stranded on a desert island or I'm just like living life like normal or? Island, yeah. I guess in, in normal life, you just have to go throughout the world one half. Oh my God. Yeah, I would say, I would say Girl Scout cookies. OGKB. That would be my choice. That's a really hard question, you know, but if I had to choose one, that would be the one for sure. For sure is not a fair question, but it's always <laughs> an interesting response usually. And the Girl Scout cookie, funny enough, was something that kind of came about while you were in the Bay-ish, right? Yeah, like shortly after I moved to San Francisco around the same time. Do you think that there's something to that where we have connections with things on a different level, whether that has to do with that time in your life or that place or these types of things that factor into our preferences, particular cannabis strains? I know what you mean. I know what you mean, but no, like I think that's, it's a hundred percent about that herb. When I first tried that, it blew me out of the water. Like it was the, the best, strongest stuff I ever had in my life. And it just, everything about it from the terpene profile to, to the vibe, the effect of it, it was just like a hundred percent what I was looking for. Like that I loved it. Like I'd never smelled or tasted any cannabis like that in my life. And it just got me so high, so unbelievably high and such a good high, like, like nothing else I'd ever had before. And it was like, I then watched it slowly make enormous waves throughout the world, you know? So I was like, at first for a while, I thought it was just me. It was like, I just fucking love this shit. It's like perfect for me. Oh my God. But yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. It's just that strain. It's just so good to me. I really, I could even say change my life. Like, Honestly, like I was, I was smoking that initial batches of cookies and there was cherry pie and then eventually sunset sherbet around those times. But like I was smoking that cookies, like around the time I really started making hash and started hashberry and, and all that. And I think it definitely having herb just that good really influenced me in a, in a positive way, like really impacted my life at that point. So, yeah, I wouldn't take away from that by saying it was like the time. I don't think it had anything to do with that, but I know what you mean. I was just curious if there was any correlation to that you felt. 
but it sounds like it's definitely more about your preference for that variety. Yeah. If anything, if anything, bro, I think it's like, it goes the other way around where it's like, if there's a really good batch of herb or there's really good batches of herb in my life at that point, it's like, man, those were some good times because it's like whatever herb we were smoking at that point in life, it's like it, it creatively inspired you to do all these positive things or, you know, really just had a positive attitude and attracted more positive things in your life at that time. Or That's the thing about good herb, which just has such, it can have such a positive influence on, on people's lives in so many ways. So I almost see it like the other way around. You know, it's like you think about like, oh, those times are so good. It's like maybe you were smoking something really good at that time. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That's funny. In an ideal world, if you could just make hash for the rest of your life, would that be what you would want to do? <laughs> it's hard to say. Obviously, I want to like in, enjoy life in other ways, like varieties of spice of life, right? Like you got to switch it up a little bit, maybe just a little bit, you know, but I wouldn't want to pigeonhole myself into that necessarily. Like, yeah, I love hash and raw trichome head preparation, isolation, whatnot. Like, but the way like we were talking about the way cannabis is exploding with technology and techniques and education, like everything, like it's just really going so fast right now. It's like, who knows what's going to happen? Like rosin was just invented, you know, this all in this hash oil, like for sure things that we can't imagine will happen in the near future. It's like, for me to say that it's like, we would be, we would be making too many assumptions, I think, like, cause really who knows what is going to happen next but i can say without a doubt like i will be pursuing the highest possible quality attainable of this plant that we love that's for sure cool man and i think that's pretty fair final question the three most influential hash makers in your hash maker career let's call it Oh, man. <laughs> well, I feel like easy bubble, man. Marcus, definitely grateful for everything he's done. Um, he's the reason why I knew about Bubble Ash. I got my first set of bags from him, learned so much from his videos, and just was so inspired by him in so many ways. So bubble, man, for sure. And I would have to say Matt Rise as well, just because of the microplaning tech and him sharing that with the world. Like that was huge. And that was what really got me making what I say is like really amazing full milk for the first time was being able to learn that and separating it and trying it properly and really just taking it to the next level. And then I think... I would have to say Camden Pua just because it was it was his hash that really got me using the freeze dryer. Seeing what he made with it was what really was enough for me to be like, okay, I'm gonna get one of these things. Don't have to. I'd have to say Camden too for sure because he influenced me in that way. Cool. And yeah, he influenced you just enough to stop doing himself and go back to CV. <laughs> yeah, the perfect yin and yang, right? Like, balanced itself out. That's hilarious. 
Well, um, dude, it's been a pleasure, man. I've had a blast. I've said that multiple times throughout the conversation. Hell yeah, me too, man. Uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on again. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? No, man. Just thank you for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I had a blast talking with you too. Of course, man. It, like I said, my pleasure having you on. Really cool and weird how life goes. And, you know, we, we were able to reconnect here. But, uh, yeah, dude, everybody who stuck around with us this long and, and checked this out, we appreciate you listening. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.